It may seem uh, a little foreign to us to think of this imagery, but in the Old Testament, cities were protected by walls. These walls were uh, critically important to the well-being of those who lived inside those cities. And in those cities, uh, surrounded uh, by those walls, uh, people were garrisoned uh, to protect themselves from the enemy. And so it necessitated uh, a watchman, a guy uh, who would be on the wall. There were several watchmen around the city walls, and these watchmen had a specific job, and that simply was to watch the perimeter of the city to see if the enemy was approaching, if there was a threat. And if there was, they would call back into the city and make it clear to uh, the, the uh, soldiers who were garrisoned in their quarters that there was a threat. And the soldiers then would respond and uh, uh, ward off the threat. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah, there is a statement, uh, there is a question that is shouted up to the watchman. Watchman, what of the night? Watchman. What of the night? And the question means, watchman, it's dark. Do you see anything out there? It doesn't look good. In here, we are trusting you and we are depending on you. It's dark. Do you see anything out there? It is that imagery that Paul draws on when he has this final meeting with the Ephesian elders. He uses wording that would be used in the training of the watchman. Pay attention. Be on the alert. And he draws into him elders of the church at Ephesus. Timothy would become the lead pastor, if you will, of this church. And and Paul, his, uh, his boat is docking at Miletus. Ephesus is about 30 miles away. He sends for these elders. This is his final meeting. He has spent uh, the better part of three years in Ephesus establishing the church there. He has a great heart, a great desire for the people in Ephesus. And so he draws in these elders. He says, let's talk. And when he does, in his final uh, instruction to those elders, he, he draws on the language of watchmen. And he says, pay attention, be on the alert. What is it that they are to pay attention to, uh, these uh, elders? What is it that they ought to notice? He says in verse uh, 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Paul says you've got to pay attention to yourselves, first of all, and to the flock of God, but then he doesn't go low on the value of the flock of God at Ephesus. He goes high. He says, these are people that God bought with his blood. These are blood-bought, precious saints of God at Ephesus. 
I would say to you in this final sermon in this series, City on a Hill, when we revisit the role and, and the task of the pastor, the elders, when we look at that, I would say to you that we do not lead an organization. The church is not in its, uh, in its fullest sense an organization. I'm not the chief executive officer of a corporation. Are we incorporated? Yes, we are. Am I the president of that incorporation? Yes, I am. But my job isn't to be the CEO of a corporation. What Paul says here in Acts 20 is that I am called to be a watchman on the wall. I am called to look out uh, past the garrison of the gospel of the grace of God and look and watch and guard. It is my job to guard. It is the job of elders to guard. Why? Because you are precious. You are bought with the blood of Christ. You are not simply people who've signed up to be part of an organization that seeks to do terrific work in this community, and we seek to do that. No, you are the blood-bought saints of God through the death of Christ on the cross. Your value is inestimable. Your value is priceless. You cost God's son. That is what has been entrusted to me. That's what has been trusted to future elders in this church. That's what's been entrusted to us. The blood-bought saints of God. Wow. That's why this is weighty. That's why to be a pastor, to be an elder, is a weighty responsibility. Notice how Paul continues. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He says, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Paul talks about two kinds of enemies that the watchman has to watch out for. Enemies from without and enemies from within. Enemies from without are clear. They are fierce wolves. They have one desire, and that is to destroy the blood-bought people of Christ. Their aim is to destroy. They are wolves. And they will come from without. And when we read on in the letter to Timothy, the letter to Ephesus, in Corinthians, we discover those wolves. They came in with errant theologies. They were heretical in their thinking. They were uh, wrong and false. And it is my job to call those people out. It is my job to do that. Uh, A few months ago, I did... I even put names up on the screen of people on television who promise that if you walk with God, you will not experience what we've experienced in this church for the past three weeks. Those people would say, if you walk with God, baby shouldn't die, uh, blindness shouldn't come, the diagnosis shouldn't come. And right now, if they were standing in front of me, I would want to sucker punch them. Why? Because it's false. It's wrong. I have a friend who has a son who was in one, who was in one of those churches, and, and they miscarried, only to go to a staff member of that church, and that staff member of that church to look at them and say, if you had had enough faith, 
she wouldn't have miscarried. Oh, that's horrendous. It is my job to call those people out. They come into your homes by television. There is no way that you should ever watch them put any stock in anything they say. They peddle a cheap gospel. They peddle a cheap grace. They have no place, no place opening up the word of God and attempting to declare God's truth. God's truth is far from them. They do it for gain. They do it for money. And one day they will pay. One day they will. There's no place for that. Absolutely none at all. It's sickening to me. Errant theology. Wolves from without. But then there are those enemies from within, uh, is, is what Paul says here. There will be those who will come from without. I know after my departure, Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And, verse 30, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Uh, What is he referring to there? I call this factions within the fellowship. Factions within the fellowship most often are coordinated around isms. Isms. What What do I mean by that? I have my own area of theology. It's a hill I die on. If you don't agree with my ism, you must not be right. I call it theological legalism. This is mine. They are prevalent in our culture today. There are two that tend to vie against one another. Calvinism is the first one. If you're not a five-point Calvinist, you must really not know Christ well. And so if you're not, if you're not in my ism, if you're not going to follow after me, then you're not totally full-on following Christ. Calvinism is just that. It's a theological way to view salvation. It is not inerrant in any of its views. It is a man's interpretation of Scripture. That's what it is. Dispensationalism is the other one. If you don't believe Jesus is coming back like this at this time in the way he says he is coming back, if you don't follow that ism, then you really don't understand the book of Revelation. You really don't get it. Dispensationalism is simply a man's way of understanding Scripture. It is not inerrant in its perspective at all. At all. And if you choose to die on that hill, could I say something to you this morning? You have taken the cross, you have taken the cross and made it secondary to your theological grid, to your theological system. And so for years, 13 to be exact, I have fought. I have fought when it has been necessary to keep any subset of theology from becoming a distraction at this place. There is no time for that. There are too many people who are dying and going to hell who do not care about the ism you adhere to. They're dying and going to hell. They are dying without Christ. They are hopelessly lost. And your ism will not save them. It will not. There's never been a theological subset that would save anybody. So in light of that, in light of that, what should we do? Paul says watchful leaders must, must do three things. Three practices of watchful leaders. Number one, 
remember others' examples. That's what he says. He says, remember others' examples. Verse 31, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. He goes back, if we go back prior to this, in verse 19 or verse 18, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. He says, I served with humility and tears and trials. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything uh, that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Paul says, I I served with humility and tears. I also, I also, Paul said, told you the truth. Even when you didn't want to hear it. I understand from the three minutes that I just finished that some of you could be frustrated with me right now. It isn't my job to walk out of here on a given Sunday and hope you like me. I cannot live like that. If I ever choose to, I'm done. I can't. No pastor can. None. We can't do that. Notice what he says. I I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Verse 21, testifying both the Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about he's going to Jerusalem. He knows that trials are coming. I want to finish well, he says in verse 24, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. It is imperative that we remember others' examples. I recall 13 years ago uh, last month, and this church took a crazy risk. Many of you are here by asking me to be pastor. I know that. I had never pastored before. I had never done what I've done now for 13 years before, and it was a crazy risk. The people who founded this church, if you don't know them well, They're risk takers. They are. Set out and and do some crazy things. And I have made my fair share of mistakes in the past 13 years. There is no doubt about that. I remember early on, Bruce was chairman of deacons at that time. And uh, we had, uh, I thought the church had decided to buy this land and voted on it. I thought that had happened. I didn't know. And I remember Jerry Padgett calling me saying, well, the land's ready. I said, well, we're ready to buy And this was not the first piece of land the church had already bought. This was the second uh, uh, few acres uh, that really, that probably from the first two or three rows, uh, we're on right now. And I said, we're ready to buy. And I called Bruce up, and I said, Bruce, Jerry's called me, and and, and he says he's ready to sell. I told him we're ready to buy. Bruce said, well, that's a great idea, but the church has not voted for one second on that. And I still remember that Sunday night meeting because I, I believe uh, we vote on things like that. I believe we should. And I still remember from that Sunday night meeting, uh, walking into meeting at the attic that Sunday night, and I said to you guys who were here, I said, well, tonight, uh, at the end of the night, either you guys, uh, Grace is going to own property, or Wendy and I just bought three acres. I'm not sure which. Uh, we'll know by the time we finish here tonight. I had no clue. I totally miscued on that one. But here's what I remember. That January, my, all that we had at that point uh, to our name was some acreage here the church bought before I came on board. And, 
And I had a desk that Nancy Turbyfield's son had given me. That desk is still in my office. I had a desk, and my office was in Miss Harris's house. And I had a cell phone, and we had a used copier from 04 Elementary. All the school teachers know that when a school gets rid of a copier, it should be in the junkyard. All right? Because 8,800 people have used it. So it's, nobody's used it right, and it's done. But that's what we had. I was the secretary, the pastor, everything. I did the bulletin uh, every week on my computer. I typed the newsletter that went out to everyone. I maintained the database on my laptop. I mean, that's, that's how it was. And I remember sitting at that desk one day, and I put my head down on the desk, and I said this to God. I said, God, I, I don't have a clue what I'm doing. I, I've never done this before. I don't know what I'm doing, and I really need some help. I lie you not that within 10 minutes, within 10 minutes, my phone rang. Within 10 minutes of that simple prayer, my phone rang. And on the other end was Steve Hardy from uh, Calvary Baptist Church in Winston-Salem. And Steve said, uh, Jerry, um, our pastor, Dr. Quartz, had been pastoring that church for 35 years. And he said, Dr. Quartz has a mentoring group. Uh, it's meeting in Western North Carolina uh, we have one spot left. Someone gave us your name. Would you be interested? Does a kid like ice cream? <laughs> yes. Desperately interested. And so uh, beginning that year, every single month for a whole day, I would go over to Hendersonville, and I would sit there all day and just learn from Dr. Quartz. And he, through humility, would say, these are mistakes I've made, and this is how I've done it, and this is what you need to do, and this is how, and then his wife reached out to my wife, and, and together uh, they had a conversation that totally changed Wendy's fears about being a pastor's wife. Because Wendy struggled because she said, I, I don't teach anything. I don't play an instrument. Uh, she said, she went through this list of all the things that she thought pastor's wives ought to be able to do. And she said, I can't do any of that. And so, so they sat down and they talked. And God, through Dr. Quartz, mentored me and taught me. Just last month, I started a very similar group. There are 14 guys who show up next door. We do every other month for a day. They, they come from Winston-Salem all the way to Asheville. And they're planting churches. Some of them are on staff here. And you know what I'm doing? I'm doing what 13 years ago was done for me. And I just pour out to them. And these guys are so desperate. They said, Jerry, we, we don't know. We've never done this before. Uh, we're in uncharted territory. I ask you two questions. Please listen to me, Bible fellowship leaders right now. I need you to listen to me, deacons, administrative team leaders, uh, small group leaders. Uh, I have two questions for you. Number one, uh, number one, who do you follow? Meaning, who mentors you? Number two, who's following you? Who do you follow? Who do you podcast? What sermons do you listen to? Uh, who do you follow? And number two, who's following you? A faithful watchman on the wall. Some point in his or her time 
worked with another faithful watchman on the wall. It's imperative. A faithful Bible fellowship leader has seen somebody else be a faithful Bible fellowship leader or a faithful teacher of the word. Who do you follow? And then look around. Who's following you? Who's watching the way you lead and saying, okay, when I'm, I'm leading this Bible fellowship group, uh, I, I want to do it like that. Who's watching the way you lead your area of ministry and saying the same thing? It, that's life. You, I'm not here just for the now. I'm not here just for present tense. I'm here for, for generations that will follow me. So are you. A faithful watchman remembers others' examples. Number two, a faithful watchman relies on the gospel. A faithful watchman relies on the gospel. Relies on the gospel. Notice what uh, Paul says. He says, verse 31, be on the alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease uh, night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Verse 32, and now... I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. A faithful watchman remembers others' examples, and the second practice of a faithful watchman is that he relies on the gospel. He relies on the gospel. Paul says, I commend you. I commend you to the word of his grace, to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Let me give you a tiny, succinct phrase that we live by at this church. Here it is. The word does the work. The word does the work. We believe if you teach the word, preach the word, practice the word, God will grow the church. The word does the work. Rely on the gospel. Rely on the gospel. Paul calls it the gospel of grace. Earlier, he refers to it by the same, by very similar terminology. What is the gospel of grace? Lynn, in our Bible fellowship group this morning, is trying to beat that into us, pound that into us. At the end, he said, I want you to get this. What is the gospel of grace? Here is the gospel of grace. Number one, there is absolutely nothing that you can do to save yourself. And everybody says, there's nothing you can do to save yourself. There is absolutely nothing you can do to save yourself. You are saved if you are because God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins, who three days later victoriously rose from the dead, and you have trusted the provision of Christ for your salvation. Paul says to the Ephesians, to the very people, he's saying to the elders, don't miss this. This is what he wrote to the Ephesians. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not, what? Of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no man may boast. There is no bragging. If you have come to God by faith in Christ, you've come to God because of Jesus Christ. Nothing more, nothing less, Jesus Christ. Number two, you are sanctified because of the work of Christ on the cross. 
Meaning, if it took Christ to save you, it will take Christ to keep you. You can't keep yourself either. You're just not that good. All right, you're not that good. I experienced this this week. Um, Trent decided that he and I should go sledding to Morganton at the School for the Deaf and Blind and at the community college. So we headed out to do that the day after all the snow. We're going down the interstate, it's just him and me, and he's pumped because he went the night before with uh, Dylan Aldridge and Patrick and Tasha, and he knows all the hills and, 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 and the jumps and all this stuff, and he's figured it all out, and sure enough, we get there, and here's what had happened from the night before. You see, the night before, it was good, fresh snow, but now it's good, solid what? Ice, you got it, all right? So it's good, solid ice. Good fresh snow is good for sleds. Good solid ice is good for broken arms, all right? And and hurt, I hurt today. Um, So we get on this hill, and he says, Dad, I'm starting from up here. I said, son, that's crazy. He said, no, Dad, it's great. And so he gets, he's face down on this sled, and he's going down this hill. And I look, and he turns around and says the words you should never say to any man, especially if you're his 11-year-old son. He says, come on, Dad, be a man. (laughs) My 11-year-old tells me to be a man. I'm struggling right now. I can't let him man, man up on me. And I look, and so what do I do? I get in my sled, which has a string. Trent has nothing. You know, he's just got this sliver of a thing between him and the earth, and he's done. He's cool with that, but I've got a string on mine, and I have this mistaken idea in my mind that that tiny little piece of nylon is going to make me go the way I want to go. Ha! That's a joke, right? And so here Trent goes, and, and he's going, and I didn't pay any attention to see what was below. I just thought, it's a big, long, icy bank. Do you know what was below? Two ditches. About three feet deep, I lie you not, they're, they're, they've been cut across to keep the water from washing down. And so I get to the first one and I, I see it from a distance. And I go, oh, Trent's already gone. And so I thought, hold on for dear life. Into the air I go. Over the ditch I go because it's ice. I'm going at, you know, nice mile per hour. And boom, I land. And then I see the other one from a distance and it's bigger. And what did I think? Tiny little string work, you know? And so I'm pulling on this string for dear life, and I'm going down, and Trent's at the bottom, and he's turned around, and he's going, ah, <laughs> like he's just laughing, and I don't know how I looked, and I go up in the air, and I decided that I could maneuver this thing, and I did, right out from and under me. It went that way, I went this way, oh, I hurt, like this morning. I came down the steps, one step at a time. Because my body took a hit it never should have. Why? Because little strings don't steer big sleds down icy slopes. You could write that down too. All right, so they just don't. Do you know what? Here's the reality. That little string I do almost every day with my life. Here's how I do it. The grace of God is able to get me over any ditch and through every trial. Amen? But do you know what? I have a little string called Jerry's ability to figure things out. And I grab onto that string every single day of my life in one way or the other and think this little string is going to get me over these big ditches. And little strings don't get Christians over big ditches. A dying Savior on the cross who shed his blood uh, for you gets you through life. That's the gospel of grace. 
period. Please hear me. Please hear me. For those of you that I made mad to begin with, that's why, that's why I've always steered us away from isms because the ism can deny the beauty of the gospel of grace. It can. That ism can do that. It will so distract you. It has me before. I love theology. I study it. I teach it. I mean, I love it. But I, hopefully I will never love it more than Jesus. Hopefully I will never in that moment of trying to circumvent a ditch in my life think that there's a tiny little string of something that I can hold on to that's going to get me over it. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Maybe I should give you this picture. Some of you will identify with this. We were in Tennessee a few weeks ago at a, uh, this indoor water park in the wave pool. I may have told this recently. If I did, forgive me. Uh, but we were in the wave pool, and there was a tiny, tiny little girl uh, six feet out with her dad, and she wasn't scared one bit. Absolutely no fear on her face. Do you know why? I watched her the whole time because water scares me. Trent was telling me a man up there too. So, um, but uh, anyway, I watched her the whole time. And as I was watching her, uh, she never took her eyes off her daddy. Ever. It was as if there was no water around her. I just watched her face the whole time. And I watched her. And, and she was just thrilled. All right, she could have drowned in a foot of water. She was in six feet of water. Uh, let me say something to you, church. Uh, three weeks ago or so, when we got the word from Vicky of what Freddie was going through, we launched into the deep. We'd hardly come up for air. And the only way we're going to get through, and Adam, I'm, I'm blown away that you see it here today. Love you so much. The only way we're going to get through is if we look in the face of our daddy. That's the only way. I can give you every theological thing in the book. But in the mornings when I wake up, I don't know if you have this feeling, but I, I love these people. And in the mornings I'll wake up and I'll have about 30 seconds of like, ah, oh, it's a new day. And then after that 30 seconds I go, oh, I wonder how John and Kelsey are this morning. I wonder how much Freddie can see today. How are Adam and Rachel? Then there are all the other things I know too, some of which you know. And there's that sinking feeling, isn't it? And if I immediately don't look into his face, I'll drown. You will too. Period. A watchful leader relies on the gospel. Always. Paul said, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he said, uh, When I came to you, brothers, uh, I did not come proclaiming you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided, note that, I decided. Paul was so stinking smart, he had to decide to throw away all of the intellect so the Corinthians could get the message. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Wow. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith may, might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
A watchful leader relies on the gospel. And finally, a watchful leader reflects the heart of Christ. A watchful leader reflects the heart of Christ. What happens here? Notice, uh, notice what happens here. Paul goes on to say, uh, you know, uh, I, I coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities. And he's just saying, I supported myself. I, I wasn't uh, a leech among you. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must do what? Help the weak. Help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. All right, help the weak. Uh, what does Paul mean by helping the weak? When you help the weak, you reflect the heart of Christ. You reflect the heart of Christ. As a matter of fact, if you look at his ministry, he came under fire for this. He came under fire for it. In Matthew 8, Matthew 8, verses 1 through 4, uh, we have this happening. It is the unthinkable thing. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Great crowds. Everybody likes great crowds if you're a leader. You want to look around and, you know, see that the seats are full or that uh, the venue's full. But verse 2 is an amazing contrast to verse 1. And behold, a leper. If you're Jesus, if you're Jesus' marketing director, what are you going to tell him to do at this point? Oh, Jesus, you got great crowds. You better cater to them. Look at all those people, Jesus. But up comes a leper. There's some problems with lepers. Number one, they looked horrible. The disease, interestingly enough, because of the absence of pain. If you ever want a medical argument for the legitimacy and need of pain, study leprosy. The absence of pain rendered them unable to know that certain things would hurt them. And so when the nerve endings no longer worked in the hands, lepers would grab a screw. In a leper colony, Philip Yancey writes about visiting one, staying there, and watching them trying to open a lock with their bare hands, hands bleeding, never noticing that their hands are bleeding. There's no pain. Pain is such a gift from God. So leprosy is the absence of pain, and uh, so they don't know when they stumble and trip and hurt. The flesh begins to uh, then disintegrate. They were considered unclean, uh, most likely assumed that it was their sin that got them into that place. And so there's the crowd and there's a leper came to Jesus and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. I want to say something to you this morning. Wherever you are in your life, that's not a bad prayer to pray. Lord, if you will, you can. There's a lot of faith in that. There's a lot of faith in that. I prayed that for a lot of sick people. Lord, if you will, you can. I don't know his will, but I know his ability. Lord, if you will, he says, you can make me clean. And Jesus turned and steered the crowd away from this leper and said, uh, let's go this way. Uh, we don't want anybody to know we're associating with him. Is that verse 3? Don't miss verse 3. And Jesus stretched out his hand. And what? What, church? Say it loud. What? 
He touched him. He touched the untouchable God. Can I pause to ask you a question this morning? Who in your circle right now is untouchable? Who's slightly embarrassing to you at times? Is there anybody that you hang out with that if somebody were to see you with, they go, huh, what are they doing together? Is there anybody whose life you are touching that others marginalize? Students, I want you to pay attention. Those of you who are in public school, are you willing to sit down at the table with the kid that everybody makes fun of? Or do your name brand shoes close the position of your family in the community calls you Maybe you don't make fun, but you sure enough don't stop those who do. I've told both my kids, I was that kid in high school, got made fun of incessantly, picked on, all those kinds of things. Partially, we were so poor. The way I dressed wasn't the way that people who had more dressed. It was just the way it was. I've just said that over and over to my kids. I was a nerd and and just got what was coming to me as a nerd. Except, you know, in calculus class because they all needed help. (laughs) I was so popular (laughs) then at the lunch table, it was all the jocks and all the people, and they would look at me like, Jerry, how do you do this? And I'd tell them, you know, they didn't have anything to do with me after that, but it was a few moments of glory. <laughs> They're now in all wildly successful careers. I need to shut up. All right, so, uh, but he reached out, and he touched them. He touched him, and he immediately his leprosy was cleansed, and Jesus said to him, Uh, Don't say anything to anybody. Show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. And later, the Pharisees get all, all in an uproar because he did it on the Sabbath. And he touched a leper. Paul said, Jesus said, it's better to give than to receive. Now, there's a problem with that because there is no record of Jesus ever saying that. It's not in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. There's no record of that. So Paul heard it from somebody that Jesus quoted that proverb. It's based on a proverb that Jesus quoted that proverb. It's just not recorded by any of the gospel writers. Here we see Paul's close connection to the community. And here's my second hypothesis on why Paul said it, though it was never recorded in the gospels. Jesus' own life bore it out. 
Jesus did say, I came not to serve, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. This book, When Helping Hurts, is what we're doing in my class on Sunday nights. I love this. In the 4th century A.D., the Roman Emperor Julian tried to launch pagan charities to compete with the highly successful Christian charities that were attracting so many converts. Uh, Writing to a pagan priest, Julian complained, the impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone could see that our people lack aid from us. The Christians were so altruistic, they were so given, that Emperor Julian said, we got to do something about this. We can't go on with the Christians upstaging us like this. I love that. Wouldn't it be great if a church was so engaged in the community that the, the pagans in the community go, wow, they're winning too many people over because they're reaching too many people and meeting their needs. A watchful leader reflects the heart of Christ. Reflects the heart of Christ. As we finish, it was in 2011 that in Ronald Reagan Airport in D.C., two planes carrying a combined 165 passengers landed without any assistance from the air traffic controller. None. You know why? He had fallen asleep. Wow. The watchman in the tower had fallen asleep. Paul, in his last conversation with these guys, says, don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep. Be on the alert. They hug they embrace, they kiss one another, uh, and Paul leaves through many tears. So, dear, what, what should I do? If you're a leader in any way in this church, those two questions need to ring in your head and in your heart. Who am I following who's following me? Who am I following and who's following me? If you aren't a leader and you ought to be, then you need to approach some leadership. You might be in a Bible fellowship group, and it might be time for you to launch out and start your own. You just need to go to your Bible fellowship leader and say, okay, I've watched you do this. I've seen what you do. If you'll help me, if you'll come alongside me, I'll go do this too. You might need to do that. Or to your small group leader, if you'll come alongside me, I'll I'll go do the same thing I've been watching you do. I'm going to tell you, every Bible fellowship leader in here will be absolutely honored if you said that to them. Every small group leader will be honored. And then, wow, pray. Pray for the the pastors. Pray for the leaders of this church. We need your prayers. We need your prayers.